Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed Baldessari. And I'm Molly Solomon. You're listening to Sold Out Rethinking Housing in America from KQED. Thanks so much for taking out the time to listen to our first series. And we're going to do something a little bit different today. We wanted to take some time and respond to some of your great emails and give you some updates. Yeah, we want to take you back to our first episode where we focused on Project Room Key. That was the program in California that housed people in hotels who were homeless. We heard from so many people, and a lot of them really connected with Sanja. She was the main person that we spoke to in our episode. She's someone who'd been homeless and was housed in one of those hotels in Oakland during the pandemic. She actually later got her own studio apartment through the program. Man, sometimes I walk around and just shake my keys because I can't. (laughs) It's like jingle bells. It's like Christmas every day. (laughs) When I first moved here, I kept opening the door and closing it. Because I could walk down the hall, open <laughs> I know it seems silly, walk down, just go back upstairs and, <gasps> I got it. I hate when people say, you can't make it. This place is making it. But you know what? Once they give you this break, it's up to you to go forward. You know, one woman wrote to us after she listened to the episode, and she really connected with Sanja. And, and she actually had heard the episode at the same time that people in her neighborhood were actually protesting similar hotel programs in New York City. And she wondered, you know, how would those people react if they had also heard how it was changing people's lives like Sanja's? And I think a lot of people who listen to the show, you know, we saw people reach out to us. Even someone in our own newsroom had a question about this. If they saw people in their neighborhoods who needed help, how could they get into a hotel room like Sanja did? And the short answer is that it's not easy. You need to get in touch with a homeless service provider who can then connect that person to one of the hotel programs if there are rooms available. And if you had asked us last fall, we would have said that the hotels weren't taking any new people because the sites were actually starting to close down. There was a lot of uncertainty about FEMA reimbursement and how long the counties could keep these programs up. But then we got some pretty big news. Yeah, it was big news. I mean, President Biden had just announced that FEMA was going to reimburse fully 100% of that hotel program. And it was going to be all the way until the end of September. 
and it was also going to be retroactive. So FEMA was not only going to pay for these hotel rooms, you know, looking ahead, but they were going to pay cities and counties back all the way to the beginning of the pandemic. And, and that's a lot. I mean, that's millions of dollars. And that's even allowing some of these counties to keep their hotels open longer, possibly expand the program in their area. And in one case, in Marin County, where they had actually already gone through the process of closing down the hotel program, they're now considering reopening again. Project Roomkey has been a huge effort, right? 23,000 people housed in these hotels across the state. But, you know, it was always meant to be temporary. And at the same time, it was supposed to be a jumping off point to permanent housing, kind of like what happened with Sanja. So the next question we had was how many of those people actually were like Sandra? How many got into permanent housing as a result of this program? So we looked at this at the end of last year and found that in the Bay Area, about 16% of the people who had already left the hotels got into permanent housing. The other people went on to temporary housing programs, friends or family, and a lot of people returned back to homelessness, whether that was into shelters or back onto the streets which doesn't sound very good. So with so many people returning to homelessness, we were wondering, you know, is this program actually working? And Governor Gavin Newsom has been a huge proponent of this. We wanted to know what he thought about it. Um, We didn't actually get to speak to the governor about it, but we did speak to Jason Elliott, who is the senior policy director for housing. We don't succeed 100% of the time. Uh, I I think it's, it's a shared goal for us at the state and for all of our local partners that every single person that comes into Project Roomkey Um, moves on to some stable housing exit. That's the goal. We fall short of that goal um, because this is a a, a population with some, you know, potentially serious behavioral health challenges and in in many cases, a long history of chronic homelessness. And that's not an easy transition to make for a lot of people. So we're going to keep aiming at 100%. uh, And if we fall short, that just means we got to try a little bit harder. Okay, so that was Project Room Key. Now we've got a whole new project that the governor is working on, and it's called... Project Home Key. The names, am I right? <laughs> I know. They're, they're good with the <laughs> names here. But, you know, that program is really taking about, what, $800 million and using that to permanently purchase some of these sites. Some of them are the hotel rooms that they're trying to transition and convert into permanent housing. And the amount of money that they doled out last year is actually going to fund 6000 permanent and temporary units all across the state of California. Some of them are already opening now or getting set to. And it's really interesting when you look at the list of proposals that was approved because it's it's super diverse just in terms of what kind of housing they've approved. Right. So it was initially billed as mostly converting motels and hotels into permanent housing. But there were all kinds of housing models in this program, and some of them are pretty innovative. I mean, we've got modular, we've got tiny homes. And in Oakland, there's something called a scattered sites program, which is basically buying up single family homes and turning them into group homes for people who are formerly homeless. I went to uh, a virtual ribbon cutting with Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff. So I uh, am so excited that this innovative shared housing model is one that we are making happen in Oakland. It is bringing our formerly unsheltered people often back home to the neighborhoods they grew up in. It is bringing them into healthy opportunities and neighborhoods that have assets and resources. Uh, And this is what everyone, especially our elders and our people struggling with disabilities and health conditions, deserve. One of the interesting things about this 
program is the speed, right? It usually takes years to develop supportive housing for people who are formerly homeless in California. And these projects... And it's really expensive. (laughs) (laughs) And it's super expensive. These projects came together in just a few months, like less than half of a year, really, from the time that they were applying to the time that they had to be in escrow. And they came in at a cost that is much lower than the average, right? It usually takes something around over $400,000 per unit for supportive housing in California. And these were closer to 150000 which is pretty incredible considering that it had never been done before. Okay, so it's cheaper, it's faster. Does this mean we solved the housing crisis? <laughs> well, you know, the state is doubling down on this. Governor Gavin Newsom did propose $750 million more in this year's budget. So they're definitely looking at it as a strategy moving forward. But, you know, the one thing that I think about is you know, these were kind of extraordinary times with the pandemic going on. So now when we don't have the pressure of the pandemic or the fact that uh, counties have to use these dollars before they expire at the end of the year, will these projects still be approved uh, without the pressure of the pandemic and the sort of political will that's behind it? I don't know. We'll see. Sounds like we'll be following that. Coming up next, we're going to return back to those gates in Berkeley, the birthplace of single-family neighborhoods. And the words housing is a human right for the mouth of one of the most powerful people in the world. Coming up after this break. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Hey, welcome back to Sold Out. So in episode three of our podcast... We started out in this neighborhood in Berkeley where single-family zoning actually began. And it was at the border of this neighborhood. There were these big stone pillars, these iron gates, which looked like this dividing line. Those gates were built to signify that Claremont was a protected white community that no one of color could live in. 
And we got so much feedback from you guys. It was really interesting to see how people from all over the country were connecting, not only to, you know, just those gates, but to really like the whole history of single family zoning. It was really interesting. People were sending us tweets of gates in their neighborhood. There were people who had lived in Berkeley their whole lives and never even knew the history of that area. Um, people who were saying that they also felt that way when they were walking in this neighborhood, that they didn't belong or that they felt out of place. And I think it just really made people think about the communities that they live in and made you really think about your neighborhood differently. And then earlier this month, we got a tweet that uh, at least I was not expecting. It came from the Berkeley vice mayor who represents that neighborhood where we started that episode, where single-family zoning all began. And she wanted to do something about it. So she introduced legislation that would get rid of single-family zoning and make it easier to build fourplexes throughout the city. Here's Vice Mayor Lori Droste talking about it. I represent the area of Berkeley, the Elmwood, where these laws began. And it started out as sort of explicit uh, racist policies to keep... Chinese laundromats and African-American dance halls out of Berkeley. And then later it morphed into redlining, uh, which forbade uh, communities of color from owning or leasing land in East and North Berkeley. So what we see now when we look at our zoning maps is we still have single family zoning in certain parts of our city. So what that means in essence is that affordable housing is essentially banned in certain parts of our city. Uh, we see that this has an enormous impact on um, outcomes, equitable outcomes. And we're Berkeley. We care about socioeconomic and racial diversity and equity. So we need to act on that. The idea here is that by opening up these neighborhoods to more housing and to housing that is inherently less expensive than a single family home, right, because a duplex, triplex is going to be less expensive than renting or buying a single family home, that you're also going to open that up to more affordable housing. And ultimately, by increasing the supply, you'll bring down the cost of housing, assuming that you also have strong tenant protections in place and you're also funding affordable housing. But I think the important thing to remember is that this is coming at a time when, you know, we had these massive protests over the summer over racial injustice and police brutality and thinking about racial equity in uh, a deeper way than what we have been in in the past. And there's a real push within the Bay Area, within California, within the federal government to center racial equity in their policies. And so what we're seeing as a result of that are a lot of cities in California doing the same thing. Sacramento last month just voted on a draft plan to allow fourplexes throughout the city. San Francisco is considering legislation to allow fourplexes on corner lots and in areas near train stations. And San Jose uh, has a proposal to allow fourplexes throughout the city that it's going to consider this spring. So there's a lot of movement happening around this and uh, way more movement than I was expecting last year when we were writing this episode. And it's not just cities that are taking this on, right? I mean, there's a state bill that actually died late last year that was going to allow two duplexes on most residential lots in California. 
now that bill's back, and maybe we'll see where it goes this year. But, you know, there are other states that are also having these conversations that have actually changed their laws. In Minneapolis, they allowed triplexes in 2019. Oregon voted to allow fourplexes in most of the larger cities across their state. And uh, the city of Portland last summer actually is now allowing up to four to six units on most lots. You know, Erin, you've been looking at, at how this is working out there. I mean, how's it going? Well, it's too early to tell in Oregon and Portland. Um, the policies were adopted, but they haven't been implemented yet. So we'll be watching and waiting to see how that all shakes out. In Minneapolis, the world's been pretty slow. There were 42 applications for duplex and triplex conversions in 2020, which was the first year that, you know, you could apply. And this was to be expected. You know, they they weren't expecting, uh, you know, everyone to, to go out and do this right away. But they are getting a lot of interest from other communities. I spoke to one housing activist who said he feels like as more cities do away with restrictions on multifamily housing, there will become an aura of inevitability around it and more cities and states will follow suit. And I think that, you know, it's really part of this bigger movement to rethink our relationship to housing and whether the idyllic American home includes a yard around every house. And as we do that, I think what we are doing is rethinking the relationship between land and housing and wealth building and what it means to have truly inclusive communities, which sort of gets us into the last thing that I think we wanted to talk about, which is housing as a human right. Housing is a human right. And we're going to, to fight for that. We all deserve to have shelter. Housing is a human right. Housing is a human Come on. right. Yeah, that's the idea that we looked at in our last episode. And we also got amazing feedback from y'all. We even heard from an Oakland school teacher who had actually assigned that episode to her class. So I think this idea of housing as a human right, it's something that we really heard more at the grassroots level. Uh, I heard it, you know, on the streets outside of Moms for Housing. But for the first time now, I think really since FDR, we're hearing it from the president. Housing is a right in America, and home ownership is an essential tool to wealth creation and to be passed down to generations. Today, I'm directing the Department of Housing and Urban Affairs and Urban Development to redress the historical racism in federal housing policies. Those are some pretty big words, Molly. I mean, that's some bold statements. What is he actually doing about it, though? Yeah, well, I mean, day one in office, Biden did go ahead and sign and extend this federal eviction moratorium all the way through March. He says he wants to extend it even further through September. And then he's also got a lot in his stimulus package that could go toward rental assistance, $25 billion. And, and you know, I think what I've heard from Biden so far is that race and equity is really going to be front and center at HUD in his administration when we're talking about housing, you know, whether that's promoting fair housing or trying to close that racial wealth gap for black Americans in this country. And, you know, he did already extend the FEMA reimbursement for the hotel program in California. And when we talked to Jason Elliott, you know, again, who's uh, with the governor's office, he said that was a pretty big deal. It can't be overstated how important that is. Um, not only the money, right? The money matters. Uh, these local communities, these counties, these tribes that are implementing Project Rimki need this funding. Uh, but perhaps also important uh, that it's a signal that the federal government um, is, is really serious uh, under President Biden 
about addressing homelessness. And, and I think there's a signal that's sent there um, that goes beyond the money, which is critical, which is to say, we, the federal government, are committed to this solution with you, California, and the other states in partnership. When I think about what Biden's thinking about with housing and sort of like this really progressive ideas that I see, you know, like on his to do list, like the thing that really jumps out to me is this idea of fully funding rental vouchers, which a lot of people think of as Section 8. That's the primary way that the government actually subsidizes low income renters. And that's huge because the, the program is very underfunded. Only one in five people who are actually eligible for those benefits can get them. And what Biden wants to do is essentially make that an entitlement. You know, like if you qualify for food stamps, you get food stamps. In this situation, if you qualify for a rental voucher, you could get a rental voucher. I mean, he's going to need a lot to get that through. But just to sort of see that on his wish list, I think, tells a lot. Yeah. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of momentum from both the federal government, the state government, when it comes to housing. And what I'm hearing from folks is that they're hopeful. There's kind of a confluence of things happening all at the same time, right? California is moving to open up uh, more neighborhoods to more housing. We know that that alone is not going to solve the housing crisis. There, of course, needs to be strong tenant protections and more funding for affordable housing. But we are seeing stronger tenant protections in California and more attention being paid to renters during the pandemic. And obviously, that's something that we have to watch and see what happens with as the moratoriums expire. And, you know, uh, we haven't talked about this yet, but for the first time, we have state legislators in California who are talking about social housing, publicly funded housing for not just the lowest income residents, but also middle income people, too. You know, right now it's just the germ of an idea, but still it's a pretty big deal and something we'll be watching. I feel like when we started this podcast, this whole like dreamy solution thing just seemed like a dream. But man, it feels like a reality in some ways. (laughs) There's a lot more happening than I was anticipating last year when we were at the outset of this. Last year, before the pandemic hit, it felt like housing and homelessness were such huge intractable issues that could never be solved. And now it feels like people are really demanding solutions and we might actually start to see some. Okay, Aaron, I've got one more question. Well, I've got two more questions that people have have brought to us. Okay. One of them is, when are we going to have more sold out episodes? (laughs) Soon. Okay, probably not that soon. Next fall. Yes, they are coming. We can't get into the details, but more sold out episodes. A season two of sold out is is in the works. Um, Okay, but the other thing that people have been asking and been wondering about is... You know, a lot of people heard about these really great things or these ideas, but they want to know, like, what they can do. What can one person do on an individual level to help, you know, move the needle on housing? Well, you know, the first thing you can do is go to your city council meetings. You know, people tend to focus on the federal government when it comes to big policy decisions. But honestly, nothing is going to impact the look and feel of your street more than the decisions that happen at the city council level. So... Go there, make your voice heard. That's where the rubber meets the road. I feel like our former editor, Erica Aguilar, was always telling us how she just loves city council meetings because that's where stuff gets done. (laughs) Um, And, you know, getting involved is something that you can do if it's, you know, 
your local YIMBY group that you want to know more about, or there's a tenant advocacy group, that's your jam. Check it out. I mean, I think that it's all about educating yourself and finding community and taking it that step further. There are tenant unions out there, you know, organize, 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 get involved. And don't forget your local homeless service providers, you know, and all the great work that they're doing. So, you know, look out for those in your community. You can, you know, they're always looking for financial support. Mm -hmm. Harder to volunteer right now, but um, they can point you in the right direction for the best way that you can help. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody who has sent us questions, who has sent us comments, who has even given us really kind critiques. We love hearing from you and we want to keep hearing from you. So you can reach us. I'm at at Solomon Out. And I am at E underscore Baldi. That's E underscore B-A-L-D-I. Thank you so much for listening and for all your ratings on iTunes. It really helps the show get noticed by other listeners like you. And we love the reviews. It has given us tons to think about for season two. Katie McMurrin mixed this episode. Our engagement guru is Kiana Mogadam. And our editor is Erica Kelly with additional help from Jessica Placek. The editorial leadership team at KQED includes Erica Aguilar, Ethan tobin Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. Original music by Rob Spade. I'm Molly Solomon. And I'm Aaron Baldessari. This is Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America.